I want you to consider those things that cause you to give praise to God. I want you to consider those things that cause you to give praise to God. Some of you may say that the salvation of your child or maybe victory from a particular sin that has crippled much of your life is reason for you to praise God. Others will say that getting into their top school or hearing that their cancer is in remission is reason to give praise to God. All of us would agree that these are reasons to give praise to God. But although it's one thing to praise God for the apparent blessings in your life, it is another thing when you're staring down some of the greatest trials that you will face in your entire life. Many can praise God for apparent blessings, but the Christian has reason to rejoice even in the agony of suffering. In our sermon text today, the Apostle Peter wants to put our suffering into perspective. And rather than letting our suffering consume us in the present, what Peter does is he actually directs us to our future glory to show us that even in present suffering, we have an indestructible hope. That the Christian can not only praise God for those apparent blessings in their life, but they can also rejoice in the blessing of suffering. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're looking at the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 1. Last week we began a new sermon series in the New Testament book of 1 Peter. And what we saw was that the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And the purpose of this letter is really to encourage them to stand firm in the grace that God has already shown to them through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you just go look at chapter 5, verse 12, you'll see the purpose for why Peter is writing. And so he's wanting to encourage them to stand firm in that grace that God has already shown to them in salvation. So this is a letter of encouragement. And the reason for this encouragement is because they're facing trials that threaten to shipwreck their faith. And interestingly, what we saw last week was that Peter doesn't begin his letter with an exhortation. He doesn't begin with, you need to do better, right? Just pick it up a little bit. Try harder. Instead of exhortation, he begins with identification. He begins with their identity. That God has given them a new identity, and that identity reshapes how they live in a hostile society. So rather than letting persecution push them to isolation or even to integration into the society and to just adopting whatever society says, Peter actually encourages them to remember who they are. Because understanding who we are is fundamental to understanding the trials that we will face. It's fundamental to withstanding the very trials that we will face. And as Peter addresses Christians as chosen exiles of God, he gives us a traveler's guide for navigating a world that is at odds with God and is no longer a place that we call home. And in this traveler's guide, 
he shows us how the hope of salvation is really the fuel for holy living in a hostile world. And the next lesson in this guide is for us to consider how our salvation actually better equips us to navigate these trials that we're going to face. And so if you would, look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. I'm going to read for us. You can follow along with me in the text. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and investigated carefully. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Well, the first sentence right there of verse 3 really serves as the banner statement for this entire passage. You miss verse 3, that banner statement, you are missing the point of the text. And he says right there in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is really the big idea of this section. He is calling us, I think, in terms of his main idea, Peter is calling us to praise God for supplying a salvation that strengthens us in our suffering. I think that's the main idea of this text. Peter is calling us to praise God for supplying a salvation that strengthens us in our salvation. This text is all about giving praise to God. It's why we started off this service with praise to the Lord the Almighty. It's all about praising God. And in the rest of this text, Peter is going to explain why you should praise God. That's what he's going to do. And he does so by explaining the kind of salvation that God has provided for us. And he's going to show us three things about this salvation that is going to cause us to want to give praise to God. 
The first thing that we see in verses 3 to 5 is that this is a salvation that is certain. It's a salvation that's certain in verses 3 to 5. The second thing that we're going to see is that this is a salvation that's glorious. It's a salvation that's glorious. We see that in verses 6 to 9. And then the final thing that we will see is that this is a salvation that is anchored in the past. This is a salvation that's anchored in the past. We're going to see that in verses 10 to 12. So we're going to see that this, this salvation is certain, it is glorious, and it is anchored in the past. All of these are reasons for us to give praise to God because of this salvation that we have been provided even in our suffering. So let's look at point number one, a salvation that's certain. Right out of the gate, Peter begins the body of his letter with praise. Now we may think that this is odd, right? We might think that this is odd. These Christians have faced shame, they've faced ridicule, they've been pushed to the margins of society, they have probably been called an outsider or one that is unwanted. So the last thing that we would expect Peter to say at the beginning of his letter is like, praise God. That's great. Praise God. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he begins with praising God for salvation. He doesn't begin by saying, hey, I'm praying for you. Don't worry, it'll all work itself out. He begins with giving praise to God for their salvation. And he's not the only one to do this in Scripture. It's not like Peter is just new at this. Right? We see Paul begin 2 Corinthians this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul does it again at the very beginning of the book of Ephesians when he says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. And where are Peter and Paul getting this? You bet they're going to the Old Testament. And they're just doing what all the Old Testament prophets and writers were doing as well giving praise to God for the work that he has done for them. Though there may be a lot that we can lament about our circumstances, above it all, there is always reason to give praise to God. And he tells us why in verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says that it's because of his great mercy If God's grace means that he gives us what we don't deserve, then his mercy is him not giving us what we deserve. So if his grace is him, right, not giving us what we deserve, then his mercy is him not giving us what we deserve. His grace, my bad, I misspoke right there. If his grace means that he gives us what we don't deserve, then his mercy is him not giving us what we deserve. We deserve Eternal death and condemnation for our sin against him. And yet, what does God do? He shows us mercy. It's been said that whereas grace regards sinners as guilty, mercy regards sinners as miserable. Grace regards sinners as guilty. Mercy regards sinners as miserable. And yet, in our miserable state as sinners... God has shown to us great mercy by giving us new birth. That's what he's done. 
when Peter speaks about new birth, he's talking about God giving us new spiritual life because we are spiritually dead as sinners. And this is not a new concept, right? We've seen this elsewhere in the Gospels, specifically in the Gospel of John in chapter 3. A religious man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and Jesus, right out of the gate, tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus needed to be born of the Spirit. He needed to be born from above. That just being religious is not enough to being a citizen of God's kingdom. Instead, you need the kingdom of God to be born in you by a work of the Holy Spirit. That's the doctrine of regeneration, rebirth, new birth. That's what that is. And that happens whenever the Spirit transforms our hearts to love God. And with this new birth, though, as we saw last week, comes a new identity that redefines our relationship to God and redefines our relationship to the world. We are both chosen and yet also exiles at the same time. So, brothers and sisters, praise God for giving us something that we could not give ourselves. Just like a child cannot take credit for being born physically, so we cannot take credit for being born spiritually. And this spiritual birth is only possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without Jesus' resurrection, we are still dead in our sins. That's what all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about when Paul is making his argument there. But in Jesus' resurrection, the Father not only gave Jesus life from death, but he also secured ours as well. Jesus' resurrection didn't just make our salvation possible. Jesus' resurrection made our salvation certain. And there are three things that we receive as a result of Jesus' resurrection that I want to highlight from what Peter is telling us in this text. The first is that we have a living hope as a result of Jesus' resurrection. The first is a living hope. The world often speaks about hope as something that's uncertain, something that lacks promise, right? We say things like, we hope to get that job, or we hope to be able to make it for Christmas, but we have no idea if we're going to get that job. Maybe we make it for Christmas. Maybe we don't. Maybe our options are open, right? We don't know. We wish for something to happen, but we don't know if it's going to happen. It's a hope that is based in this life. That is what worldly hope is. Biblical hope, biblical hope is the opposite. It is based on the certainty of the life to come. It is a hope that we know is going to happen. In fact, Peter says that this hope is what right there in verse 3? This hope is living. It's living. And it's living precisely because Jesus is living. Jesus is alive. Our hope is as certain as Jesus' resurrection. That's how certain your hope is. Now think about this. If you have a worldly understanding of hope in hard times, it's going to be hard to want to persevere when you're uncertain about that outcome. It's going to be really hard to persevere. It's going to be really hard to have confidence or to receive any comfort when you're not sure at all how things are going to work out. But for Christians, suffering does not diminish our outlook. It actually reinforces it. 
because our hope is alive. We may face the threat of rejection, but in the end, that won't overturn our resurrection. God raised his son to give us hope in our exile. And when you're given new spiritual life, you're given a living hope. That's what you receive in this salvation. The second result that we receive from Jesus' resurrection and that further describes our hope is an imperishable inheritance. That's the second thing. So we have a living hope, and now we've got an imperishable inheritance. And this further describes that hope. In pop culture, there is often an infatuation with trust fund babies. This is why we have shows about the Kardashians or even the Hiltons. I am never telling you to go watch those. They're terrible. Those whose financial future never seems to be in question and who will forever live off of the fortune of their family. But Peter says that we have something better and more secure with our inheritance as God's children. And the words that he uses all relate to the promised land that God gave Israel as their inheritance. There's a difference, though. Peter uses these words not to speak about a physical promised land over there near Jerusalem or in in Palestine. Instead, he uses it to speak of the end-time hope of all believers in this context, a physical inheritance that's kept in heaven for us, what we know as the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth. And he describes this inheritance with the words imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Unlike the promised land that was ravaged by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, that was defiled by Israel's idolatry and experienced famine and drought as a result of God's judgment, the Christian's inheritance is unable to be destroyed or defiled by our circumstances because it's kept in heaven away from all of the troubles of your life. No downturn in the economy or excessive spending by a family member can wipe out your inheritance that Christ has secured for you. Nothing can wipe that out. But how can we be certain that we'll actually receive it? Okay, we know it's kept in heaven for us, but how can we be certain that we're actually going to receive it one day? It's one thing for it to be securely kept for you, It's another to actually receive it and enjoy it. So how do you know that that's going to happen? Peter gives you the answer in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He gives you the answer. He says, you are being guarded or kept by God's power through faith. That's how you know. You're being kept by God's power through faith. The same power that guards our inheritance guards us for our inheritance. That's phenomenal news. God does this ultimately through your faith. Faith is the means that he uses to guard you and to keep you for your inheritance. Brothers and sisters, your faith is no small thing. It's not only just one, it's not only just a one-time act, right, by which you are then saved and come into saving faith in Jesus and enter into a relationship with him. It's not just a one-time act. This is a consistent, ongoing, 
thing that happens throughout the rest of your life. It's an ongoing trust that persists even in the trials that you face until the day of your salvation. So when you trust God in hard circumstances, it actually reveals where your hope lies. How you engage with physical suffering, difficult family members, a hostile political climate will expose whether or not you truly believe that your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So friends, do you live like Jesus' resurrection isn't certain? Do you live like his resurrection is not certain? Like our inheritance is no different than what others are just going to receive in this life. Is that how you live? What are your trials say about what you believe about your inheritance? Our faith reveals where our hope lies because faith is the reality of what is hoped for. It's the proof of what is not seen. Your faith is no small thing because God, guards you for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time through faith. This is the third thing that we see as a result of Christ's resurrection. We've seen that we get a living hope. We have an imperishable inheritance. And thirdly, we have a ready salvation. A ready salvation. This living hope or inheritance is now referred to as salvation. He's just continuing to further describe this living hope that we have, and he calls it salvation. It speaks to all that God gives us in the end. When the biblical authors speak about salvation, most often they're speaking about Jesus' work on the cross to deliver us from the guilt of our sin, or they're speaking about our future inheritance. Peter, in this context, is speaking about our future inheritance. And he says that this salvation is ready that God isn't putting the final touches on this salvation right now, right? It's not like he's constructing it as history goes on. He says it's finished. It's ready for us. But it won't be revealed until that final day. Our future salvation is already a reality for you. Kind of like the Fixer Upper show, right? The house is finished. And all that's left is the big reveal in the end. It's somewhat like that. So friends, we have reason to praise God because when he gave us new life through Jesus' resurrection, he secured for us a living hope, an imperishable inheritance, and a ready salvation that is true for us even on our worst days. That is still true for you. Our salvation is indestructible. Because it's rooted in our indestructible Savior who overcame sin and death through his death and resurrection. There is no Saudi investment fund that has deeper pockets than this inheritance. There is nothing that has greater security than this inheritance. Through Jesus' resurrection, we are rich beyond all measure. And there is nothing that is more secure than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, we stand firm in the grace of God by considering the salvation that he has secured for us through the resurrection of Jesus. 
But have you considered that salvation for yourself? Have you considered that salvation for yourself? Nothing this world offers you is more certain or more secure. In fact, outside of Christ, our hope is dead. Our inheritance is going to perish, and we won't be kept for salvation, but judgment because of our sin against God. And so, friend, I want to encourage you to consider this glorious inheritance that you can have in Christ, this glorious salvation that God has provided in Jesus. Only Jesus' indestructible life can give you an indestructible future. Why run after all the things of this world when they'll just perish and fade away in the end? Why do that? Turn from trying to find life in things that will only result in eternal death and trust in Christ who is secured in eternity eternity for you that is far more glorious and far more certain than anything else this life can offer you. Look to him for things that are secure. Look to him for salvation. Only an indestructible man can give you the indestructible life that you long for. So trust in him. So we've considered why we can praise God for his work in securing our salvation. But how does our future actually affect how we respond to trials right now that we are living through? How do we respond when trials threaten to dismantle this hope that we've just considered? Let's look at point number two, a salvation that's glorious. We're looking at verses 6 to 9 now. Our future affects how we live in the present. Right? We see this in several different ways just in, in life in general. Those who want to retire, what do they do? They save up money right now in order to be able to retire someday. If a meteorologist predicts a heavy snowstorm in three days, what do people do but go crazy and go to Walmart and try to buy up, buy up all the toilet paper and water they can possibly find, right? You witnessed this during the pandemic. There was no toilet paper. Beyond me, why toilet paper is one of those necessities, but it is toilet paper and water. But as we just saw, as Christians, our future is certain and secure. But it's more than that. It's highly practical for how you live your life right now. Because not only is our hope certain, so is suffering until Christ returns. Sin still exists. We still sin. Suffering still happens because we live in a fallen world. We've been given new life in Christ, but we still live in a dark and dying day. Thankfully, though, our suffering doesn't call into question our salvation. Instead, our suffering actually prepares us for our salvation. Look at how Peter talks about this in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, you rejoice in this, and the word this right there is describing all the stuff that he just said about salvation in verses 3 to 5. So you rejoice in this, everything I've just said about salvation. You've rejoiced in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. I love that Peter uses that broad phrase, various trials, right? This is not a one-size-fits-all kind of trouble. It's diverse. 
It's going to include everything from being socially excluded because of your faith to navigating chronic illness in a godly way. Everything from losing a job or a loved one to being put down at work for not aligning with a specific social agenda. Everything from battling crippling depression to being imprisoned for telling others about Jesus. These are not trials of one kind. These are trials of many kinds. And as comforting as it is that Peter acknowledges our trials and that this suffering is only going to last for a short time in the grand scheme of things, it's even more comforting to know that these trials aren't pointless. They're not meaningless. They're not meaningless consequences of random events like we would find from an atheistic perspective. Peter says the opposite, actually, in verse 7. There is a purpose to our suffering. And he communicates that with the phrase, so that, right there, in verse 7. We suffer grief in various trials. Why? So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose of your suffering is that your faith would result in praise, glory, and honor whenever Christ returns. Our trials aren't meant to call into question our salvation. They're meant to prepare us for that salvation. They're not meant for us to doubt God's faithfulness. They're actually the very means by which God actually displays his faithfulness to us. God gives you trials because he cares about your destiny. He cares about your destiny. And he uses this picture of gold being refined in the fire to illustrate this. When a goldsmith puts gold through the fire, they do so to what? Melt off all of the impurities from that gold so that what comes out is what? Pure gold. In a similar way, God uses trials to test the genuineness of our faith so that what comes out is far more valuable, far more enduring than just some earthly metal that's going to perish one day anyway. Out of the fire of pain will come praise and glory and honor for you. And that is good news. And this is the same for Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that laid before Jesus was not the cross itself. It was everything that that cross would secure for his people and for all who turned to him in faith. That was the joy that set before Jesus. It was the hope of glory that he went to that cross. That was the joy of the cross. Just as we will share in Christ's afflictions, so we will share in his glory that he has secured through his death and resurrection. We know that God loves us. We know that he sent his son to die for us and that the purpose of our life is to glorify him. But did you notice right there that it also says that God's plan is to glorify you? It's to glorify you so that your faith will result in what? The praise, glory, and honor at the, revela at the revelation of these things in the last time. And not only are we going to receive salvation then, right? 
but we're actually receiving it now. Right? This is not a glory that we can somehow earn, but it's a glory that we receive as we share in Christ's glory through faith. It's precisely because Jesus is glorious and worthy of all glory that you will receive glory through faith in him, being united to him in faith. And not only are we receiving this, will we receive this salvation, but we're actually receiving it right now if you notice in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Peter says that we're receiving it right now. Because Jesus has already come, paid for sin, rose from death to life, we're experiencing many of the benefits of salvation right now. We no longer stand condemned before God. We have received the Holy Spirit who now indwells us as a gift from the Father and the Son. We are now citizens of God's kingdom. These are just some of the benefits. You can go on and on and on. You go to Ephesians. Paul goes into all of those spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We now have the hope of glory because of Christ's glorious work. And it will be fully realized whenever Jesus comes to make all things new. So how does Peter tell us to respond to all of this good news that Christ has secured for us? How does he tell us to respond to this salvation that is certain and glorious? He tells us to rejoice. He tells us to rejoice You may face shame from the world, but that's only going to result in honor. Rejoice in that. Your trials will bring you great pain, but that pain one day will result in praise. Rejoice in that. Society may deem you a loser or an outcast, but in the end, you're going to receive glory with Christ. You can rejoice in that. As a chosen exile, this is your identity, and this radically reshapes how you suffer. Suffering is an opportunity for you to rejoice in everything that God has already secured for you. That's what it is. So brothers and sisters, how do you respond in your trials? How do you respond in your trials? As you face physical suffering, do you loathe your situation? I often fall in that camp. Do you loathe your situation? Or do you rejoice that one day all things are going to be made new? As you face loss throughout life, does it deepen your love for Christ who actually suffered loss, his own life, for your eternal gain? As Christianity loses cultural influence in our society, does it lead you to complain about it? Or does it actually deepen your trust and your resolve in the Lord? Our trials will expose what we value most. Is our hope in this present age or in the one to come? How we respond to trials will reveal where our hope lies, and it actually serves as a witness to the world. It's been said that in this life, the rich have reason to hope, the comfortable have every reason to hope, beautiful people have, at least in the world's eyes, reason to hope. Powerful people have reason to hope. But when our hope is inexplicable, when it doesn't make sense, that's when people open their ears to hear what we have to say. And as their ears are open, 
What will people hear from you in your suffering? The fundamental disposition of a Christian is that even in suffering, there is reason to rejoice. When our future hope is a present reality, there is always room for rejoicing because there is more joy in our salvation than there is pain in your suffering. So praise God that not only is your salvation certain, your salvation is really glorious when you think about it. You can rejoice in your suffering now because one day it is going to give way to glory, to praise, and to honor. And So not only can we praise God because our future hope is a present reality for us, but we can also praise God because our hope is actually anchored in the past. We see this in our final point. Point number three is salvation that's anchored in the past. In this final section, Peter is continuing to speak about this salvation. That's why he says concerning this salvation. So he's continuing to speak about this salvation. But instead of continuing to point us to our future, he actually shows us our privileged position as those living in the days of fulfillment. And he talks about this from the standpoint of God's grace in verse 10. Peter is using grace right here as an umbrella term really to speak about our salvation. Salvation is a grace of God. Why? Because we don't deserve it as sinners. We deserve eternal condemnation before God. But God has shown grace. He's provided it through his son. And there's a couple of things that we learn about this grace of God. First, it was the concern of the prophets. That's what we get in verse 10. This salvation, this grace was a concern of the prophets. The Old Testament prophets prophesied about this grace and that it would come to us. Though they were inspired by God, they were not all-knowing. So it became their preoccupation and their desire to carefully investigate and search into when and how the Messiah would come. They poured themselves over the scriptures and suffered in doing so. The prophets not only served their generation by giving them God's word, but they also served ours by declaring the fulfillment of salvation. The prophets prophesied this salvation and longed to see its fullness, but they were kept from it because they were serving us. The second thing that we see is that this grace, it was indicated by the Spirit to these prophets in verse 11. The Old Testament prophets carefully investigated, they inquired about this salvation, but the Spirit inspired and indicated to them when and how the Messiah would suffer for our sins and then be glorified through the resurrection from the dead. The Spirit of Christ was at work in the Old Testament to give revelation on when and how everything would happen. That's what those prophets are proclaiming. The Spirit gave hope to God's people then of a day to come when the curse of sin would be reversed for our good. But not only that, this grace, it was proclaimed by those even in Peter's day, as you see there in verse 12. He says in verse 12, These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Not only is this salvation the preoccupation of the prophets who predicted this salvation, but it was also the preoccupation of the New Testament saints who were indwelt with the Spirit who declared the fulfillment of all these things in Christ. We saw that this with the prophet, or we saw this with the apostles in the book of Acts, right? When we looked at the book of Acts, they were preaching and declaring this salvation has come 
in Jesus. They gave their lives for the proclamation of his grace so that Peter's readers may praise God for their salvation. But it wasn't just the apostles in Peter's day and his audience's day. It's also angels as well. Angels longed to look into this grace. As humans, we often wonder what angels know and do. But right here, we see that it's angels that long to catch a glimpse of these things and marvel at God's salvation to sinners. Friends, the point of Peter highlighting these four groups, which I just showed you in these three verses, the whole point of Peter highlighting these four groups is how their preoccupation with salvation served these believers to remind them of their privileged position in history. That's the whole point. That's why he draws from the prophets and the spirit indicating to them and then to the apostles, and then now to the angels that long and marvel to look into these things. He is showing us how privileged we are to live on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. We live in the days of fulfillment. And you can imagine the kind of work that that would do upon the hearts of those who are suffering shame for the sake of Christ's name. That would encourage them greatly. They live in the days when their sins have been paid for by the blood of Christ, the days of the Spirit who indwells them and empowers them to live godly lives. They live in the days that everybody else longed to see. Peter's audience is privileged, and so are we. These verses ought to humble us that we get to experience the joy of what so many died to proclaim. It ought to strengthen you to stand firm in God's grace as you face trials because you know that salvation that Jesus secured through his death and resurrection is the salvation that you now stand in that everybody else was proclaiming throughout history. Not only does our future hope cause us to rejoice in our present afflictions, but even this prophetic hope comforts us with the status that we now have as chosen exiles in a world that is not our home. We are living in the reality of what everybody in the past proclaimed. We long for the day of our salvation as those whose salvation is secure through Christ's resurrection. We are blessed beyond our wildest dreams. Friends, do you you understand, do you know, do you live like you are this blessed? You live in the days that people longed for, that looked into and investigated carefully. You are blessed beyond your wildest dreams, Christian. When Christ rose, he not only secured our hope of salvation, but he fulfilled the hope of the prophets who were serving us. And so, brothers and sisters, praise God for salvation that strengthens us in our, in, our, in our suffering. Praise God that our salvation is certain. Praise God that our salvation is glorious and that our salvation 
is anchored in the past. Let's pray together.